So hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Steve Pugh and I do various different podcasts and live streams here on the internet. Uh, and with this one, it's called the Growth Strategy Podcast. And I love to introduce you to really interesting people that I think can help your business or career. And the way that I kind of tend to do it is I just pick cool people. I kind of either met through the network, I've been introduced to that kind of thing, but also share knowledge and topics and ideas on stuff that actually you might not have thought of that might be quite interesting. And Joanna, actually, I first met, I was actually in the audience. It was something, I think it was called Innovation Fest. It's about six years ago. She was one of the keynote speakers. And it was the first time I was ever exposed to Trend Bible. And then actually, it was about two months ago, Joanna, I think there's the marketing meetup talk in Newcastle, which you did a really good job, uh, which I won't spoil, but talking about. And then likewise, you were also in, or are in, Northeast Times this month. I know it's quarterly. Um, and basically, what I think would be really interesting is for her to share her journey but actually talk about trend forecasting what is it how does it work that kind of thing but also why i think it's really important to business and i won't spoil my thoughts on it just because we'll come to it later on uh, but if you join us for the next kind of 30 40 minutes if you drop a message in the comments it'll pop up on my screen and i'll bring it in if you've got any nice questions or whichever and based on that there we go so people can now see you and hear you hi hi steve you seem nervous don't be nervous <laughs> <laughs> I should I should know the content, shouldn't I, given that it's about me and my business and my world. But that's the big thing. And just before we came on air, we were talking about authenticity. But that's the big thing is that when I try not to do too much pre-chat, because for me, that's what people want. And that is we're all swamped with so much stuff out there that actually people, just, you know, people are working away. They've had a tough week. They just want to check out what's Joanna up to, how's she getting on. And it's that, I'm very big on, I hate the authenticity word, but it's that part of the reason why I love live content is the fact that I just kick that light there. But when things aren't perfect, it's 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 real. Does that make sense? Versus, you yeah. know, the purely curated, perfectly edited. And I think that misses something. So anyway, how's your Thursday been? It's been pretty good so far. So far, it's been really good. Yeah, just a, the usual day in the life of a trend forecaster lots going on so yeah really good awesome um would you be happy to start with just to give a quick intro to yourself where you're from just for people that might not know you so far yeah absolutely so i am founder and chief exec of trend bible and that is a, a trend forecasting company so we forecast the future of life at home and help companies understand how consumers will be shopping and choosing things in the future. Um, I set the business up in 2008, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been through a couple of a pandemic and a couple of uh, financial crises. So I've had the the sort of benefit of um, running a business through the rough and the smooth. In fact, I set the business up in in the sort of 2008 financial crash. Um, I've been a trend forecaster for over 20 years. So mm -hmm. before I set Trend Bible up, I was a trend forecaster working for other companies um, and worked in London and New York as a trend forecaster there, worked in the fashion industry and moved back to Newcastle to set Trend Bible up, really moved back to the Northeast, which is where I'm from originally. And now I live back in Newcastle with my husband, Simon, and my two kids and dog and this is this is where we're settled now no cool and just on that i just because i think people in in dear to it we actually so i normally do these at either 3 p.m or 4 p.m we moved it forward because you got the school run but i think that's important because it shows that as we kind of share your story people often forget that you or sarah davies or whoever you've still got families you've still got kids you've got regular stuff to do 
yeah that's it i I think it's you know especially post pandemic is that again before we came on air i was talking about i started these in my spare bedroom but i think that's what people want to know it's that the big thing i think for long form content is that people will hopefully discover more about what trend bible does and what trend forecasting is but the differentiator is like yeah but do they like and trust you what's your background and that's the real thing that people buy into and just talking about regular stuff like i you know talking about stuff that went wrong my car broke down and died on tuesday and it just it was awful (laughs) but the point is the the world isn't this perfect place but actually it's all the little nuances i think people really love and endear when you kind of do i totally agree and actually we'll probably talk about it more but you know being running a business from newcastle especially a trend forecasting company there aren't any other trend forecasting companies in the north of england they're all in you know, London and Paris and Amsterdam, they're in the, the sort of fashion capitals. Mm. So I I think you're right, there's something there about um, authenticity and being true to yourself. I mean, when I moved back to Newcastle to set my business up, a lot of my peers and friends in London said, are you mad? Like, <laughs> that is, how are you going to get business? And it was sort of pre the era of being able to do everything via Zoom calls. Um, so yeah, there, there was there was definitely something that I, I knew that was the right move for me. I knew this was going to be a solid base for me. I mm-hmm. wanted to move back to the northeast, and it and you know there have been times when I've gone to do, to do pitches to maybe a I remember a, a London based company that sort of said, "Oh, Newcastle, like how many trends start there?" And I thought, mm, "You just don't you don't really understand how trends work if that's how you think because." You know, we trends that especially the trends that I forecast for the companies that I forecast mm-hmm. for, they're all multinational global brands. And when a trend is successful, it means that over 70% of consumers have adopted it. So it's mass market. So you need to see evidence of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a trend living and breathing in Newcastle. Um, and actually we've got a little sort of internal methodology we talk about like the the shoreditch to shields road approach where like if we forecast a trend and it was only ever relevant for shoreditch or like the cool districts in in new york then it's it's only going to hit a certain amount of the market and actually our office is just like five minutes from shields road which i think is i think it was nominated one of the worst high streets in britain not very long ago but it's it's a it's a real English High Street and when a trend hits Morrison's on Shields Road you know that it's a mass market trend so that kind of authenticity you're talking about can become um, a differentiator and if you stay true to the things that you really like believe in if you listen to those things I think they can drive your business in a way that's completely personal to you and it stops you kind of looking to competitors or other people to say, well, how are they doing it? Can I mimic something that they're doing and stay true and bring a bit of your own flavor to things? I must say there's so much that I, I would, I was tempted to jump straight to this bit, but what we then miss, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is a bit croaky today, is if we can, can we start about what you were like at school and how you grew up? Because the, the big sure. thing is, is that I think there's often uh, common trends and themes between people that do start their own business and do certain things. And often that kind of comes from school. 
and then we'll go on to trend forecasting and that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's, so let's, see like think <laughs> let's see if you think you can spot a common theme between uh, me and the other people that you speak to. I was not massively academic. I went to school in a, um, a really small school. I think there were six or seven people in my year group at school, maybe 25 kids in the whole school wow. in rural Northumberland. So really tiny. What age is this? Uh, so just so I can, is this primary junior? school? Primary school. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, I was a creative child in as much as I was drawn to doing creative activities. I used to cut and stick. I used to, um, I can really vividly remember using my mum's Laura Ashley catalogue when she'd finished with it and chopping up all the little patterns and shapes in it and making little outfits for little figures. And I really remember just loving the colour and the pattern and the texture and putting the collage, putting things together um, and developing little concepts, which really, I mean, yeah, yeah. not to undermine the wonderful world of trend forecasting, but there is a bit of a bit of that as you sort of progress through the career. Um, so I was very creative. I, I was never never good at drawing the whole way through. I'm not a, not brilliant at drawing. Um, and I think that made it difficult for me in art classes because the one thing that the art teacher always wants you to do is to be able to draw well, mm -hmm. when actually there's a ton of other stuff you can do in an art class that is worthy uh, and creative, including just plain old creative thinking and creative mm -hmm. problem solving. So I was very creative, um, lived in rural Northumberland, out in the countryside, so I was out all day long, lived in like an imagination world. I've got three sisters, so we were sort of, had our little girl gang and it was just as well because there were barely, you know, there weren't that many other people in the village that were our age. Um, so yeah, I was not academic. I was very quiet. Um, the creative sort of thread was pulling me, but I never thought that you could have a career as a creative person. And I think I was probably 18 before mm. somebody said to me, do you know that you can be a fashion designer? And I just, that blew my mind. I was thinking, as a job like that people actually do that this just seemed like a dream world to me isn't that funny it's just it's when i'm a big thing on people you don't know what you don't know but then likewise if you've never been exposed to different careers you just assume that you'll do what your parents do or what your uncle does yeah. or your friend and it's that kind of thing of where if you don't okay it's probably different now with the internet because you can research stuff but again i was born in 83 so i you know i grew up most of my life i think i was in uh, sixth form when the internet really kind of kicked off and the first time um one of my friends i remember where i was it was in the school library and they showed me this thing called a search engine and i was like yeah but how do you know what to type in i mean just <laughs> it blew my mind but the point is you know kids now are digital native it's just instinct yeah. instinctive that if you're into fashion you yeah. probably watch all the met gala stuff you think oh who's that designer and you you google totally. stuff in a way that we couldn't in some ways totally i mean my 14 year old son said to me yesterday what's the met gala because it's all over social media and he you know when i was 14 you know, i didn't know anything about i, I knew that I, i'd heard that trends spread and mm -hmm. that we're the last ones to get them that's what it felt like <laughs> that was sort of the message right through school was like trends start elsewhere cool stuff happens elsewhere and it trickles down and we get it like a year or two years or five years after everybody else has done it so i always had was building this idea that well i want to be where the action is like where is all of this sort of cultural richness and even with regards music and art and yeah. fashion that that was a world that I was really interested in um but I didn't it, it wasn't accessible to me I think I went to my first art gallery when I went to Newcastle College so um and that blew my mind that people went to art galleries and I saw my first art show there 
And I just couldn't, I remember just thinking, I can't believe the the color. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. So, um, and I think my my parents, my mum was a medical secretary, my dad was a builder. My dad could see that I had a sort of creative streak and there were sort of, there's a bit of a trickle of that through the business. My granddad used to draw architectural plans for an architect. My dad's a builder. So, you know, quite a practical creativity. And I think he could see that I had a bit of a sort of graphics eye. And he said, oh, you know, why don't you be like a sign writer or something like that? Because that was kind of the world he, that's where his knowledge of creative careers sort of ended was he knew some that painted your lettering on the side of your van when it wasn't a, an adhesive sticker. Um, so there was definitely people sort of could recognize I was going to do something creative, but it wasn't until I had a an art teacher at A level and she said to me, we, we had to pick a personal project. And she said, why don't you turn this project into a, a fashion project? And I thought, oh, are we allowed to do that? Is that work? Like it's, it just seemed really um, frivolous to me that I could do that. And uh, I just remember saving up all my money to buy like the L Catwalk magazines and Dazed and Confused magazine and The Face. And it was like a peak sort of 90s um, culture. And, and there was a real um, appreciation of Britishness at the time as well. Yeah. I remember that sort of, you know, the, there was a music scene here. It was the whole sort of Blair and Oasis and the sort of Labour government and Tony Blair. And there was this, you know, these sort of um, celebrity status musicians in Number 10 Downing Street. It was just, I, yeah. I remember it feeling like a really sort of buzzy time and it was a, a huge time for creativity. So I look back now and realise that was part of the sort of uh, the cultural tapestry mm-hmm. where I was trying to figure out where I was I was going to go in that. But I think what's interesting is that the so it sounds like that as a kid, you always had the creativity to do stuff and create stuff and cut stuff out. Because actually, when you said it, because I think we're almost similar age, but it's that when back when I was a kid, you used to get comic books and magazines and stuff where you would literally have a little character. I don't know if you remember this, and you would yeah. cut out the T-shirt and had little tabs that you would fold yeah, over. I so loved you... all that stuff. I, I'd forgotten. I loved anything like that. Um, that anything that was like sort of crafty, anything with a sort of fashion angle. I really was was drawn to all of that. I mean. If you look back, I've got some hilarious photographs of, of me as a child, you know, with a, a ter- terrible home haircut, wellies on, you know, but then I've got a belt on, I've, I've accessorized. So you could tell even from an early age, there was yeah. something there, you know, I was just out in the field. <laughs> no, I love it. I, love it. But, um, I was I was already thinking, oh, you know, I want to be able to put an outfit together. But I think that's almost that when I was trying to look at, people and society and stuff and i think you have your, your normal standard deviation of people where i think a lot of people just go with the flow and they just do whatever it is they're told to do and they get a job and they fall into it and they're happy to stay there and i think often it is the kind of slightly rebellious outlier kind of people often go on to be entrepreneurs because they've got a passion about something and it could be that you want to be a creative you want to run a business you want to do whatever it is but i don't think everyone has that magic or that spark that not everyone should but the point is, I think for a lot of people, if you do have it, you know, early on that you, you might not be able yeah. to know what it is that you want to do, but you know, you want to do something, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things that happened there. So for me, there was kind of the the permission to do so, to pursue it, which was 
I, I mean, I possibly would have rebelled against that even if that hadn't been there. I don't think my dad was mad keen. You know, he said, to me, I remember him saying, how many fashion designers do you know that come from here? And I said, well, none. You know, so I, I do remember thinking, oh, but maybe I do know better than you, which is such a teenage yeah. rebellion, I suppose. Um, so there was the permission to do so. But also, I wasn't that good <laughs> at art and design. So I didn't really, I wasn't sitting there thinking, I'm destined for a creative career because actually, Actually, I didn't really have full permission to do so. And I wasn't, you know, I was being told in art classes all the time, you know, you're not good at drawing. You've got a D in art. Um, you could, probably won't be able to study art at A-level. You're going to have to pick something else. And when I picked my A-levels, I picked um, graphic design, English and French. And after about six weeks, just thought this, I'm not, I can't do the French. I really want to do art. Mm -hmm. And I had to really go and beg the art, te art teacher to let me back in the art classes. And he was devastated. He was like, not again, you know. Um, but the and, funny thing um, is that when you go to art galleries, because I'm posh and middle class now that we do that kind of thing and didn't growing up. But it's almost when you, I remember going to Picasso and a lot of his stuff, the masters weren't good. Some of them were. They weren't good from birth. They just practiced and they just worked their asses off. And it's almost where mm -hmm. very few, some people, Mozart maybe, some people just get it and they're just savants at that one thing. But most people just work really hard and they love it and they go into the detail and they get better and they develop their own flair. But the point is, it's always easy to look at these world famous people and say, oh, well, they, they must have always been like that. And it's like, no, no, they just worked really hard at it and they enjoyed it. I agree. I, I really believed. I mean, th there was certainly somebody in my art class at A-level who has gone on to be an artist. And I thought, you know, creativity, artistic flair was just something you either had or you didn't. And yeah. that's kind of what we got taught, that there was not really any progression for you to kind of get better at it and I never felt like I was getting better at it and felt I felt like I just was sort of trying to get through it um and when I went to I applied to go to Newcastle College to do the art foundation course which I'd heard about from the lady that ran the local art shop and she said oh you should have you heard about this course you should go there and I used to go in and get my notebooks and my sketchbooks for my A-level art and I said oh no I don't know anything about it and she said you should look into it you should research it you know lots of kids from around here if they choose a creative subject, they go to do this foundation course. It's a year long and you get to sample all of these different artistic outputs. So as soon as I heard that, I thought, right, I've got to get on this course. And then people would say, you know, well, they only take, I think, 700 students and they usually have about 5,000 applicants. And I was thinking, well, the chances of me being able to get in aren't that high. Um, my interview there was ter a terrible experience. I mean, I got so grilled um but it was it, i mean yeah it, it was a, i spent I, I still say it was one of the best years of my life being at newcastle college it was finally the place where you could be creative you were amongst other kids that were just like you you know you you weren't at school where you were maybe different to everybody else you were amongst a whole cohort of kids just like you and um yeah it was it was a brilliant and, and I remember the first day the the course director said you're all here to do one thing this year and that is to make as many mistakes as you possibly can mm. and that was so liberating having come from an A-level course where it was like you can't use black and black's not a color and don't put outlines on things and if the proportion's all wrong to being told just be creative make mistakes was so liberating Love it. so what happened next 
After that, well, I had a, I, I loved the fashion and textiles elements of the, the foundation course and, and thought, well, maybe I want to specialize in fashion and had a really supportive tutor there. And she said, you need to apply to Kingston University. It was one of the best courses in the country. It still is. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, you know, that seems a bit of a stretch, um, but I applied and there were two of us from my course that applied and got into Kingston. So mm -hmm. um, off I went to Kingston and um, I had a tough time there. I mean, the, the standard is extremely high with Kingston. I think the the recruitment rate was something like 98% at that time. So everybody that went to Kingston was getting a job. So I, I knew statistically I'd probably do quite well there, um, but it was tough. And in my second year, I switched from, from studying women's wear to men's wear because I thought, oh, there are quite a few people on my course who are also women's wear designers and their work looks a bit like mine. And if it comes to the crunch and we're both going to go for the same sorts of interviews, I think they're probably going to get picked over me because, again, my drawing wasn't great. So I switched to men's wear. And um, that was a very sort of strategic move to make sure that I had a good job mm. opportunity. And it did, it did pay off. Um, and in the Easter holidays of my final year at university, I used my grant in the days that when people got grants to study at university and um, bought myself flights to New York with a friend of mine. We both went out there with our portfolios and phoned up a recruitment agent and said, hi, we're you know, about to graduate from Kingston University, would you like to see our work? And she said, yep, come and see me and sent us both off for interviews that afternoon. And by the afternoon on the first day, I had been offered a job. I both love the ambition, the naivety, and just the yeah. pure ballsiness to be like, I love it. I mean, it's funny now to reflect on it at the time. I just remember being so casual about it. It was like, I just, I remember phoning my parents from a pay phone and saying, hi. And they said, oh, have you arrived? I was like, yeah, I've got a, I've got a job, wow. you know? And they, I think they were thinking, oh, she's been tricked. Like something, <laughs> she's, she's been manipulated. She doesn't know what she's doing. She hasn't really got a job. Um, and obviously I, I came back and the company that um, offered me the job were called American Eagle Outfitters, mm -hmm. which at the time, I mean, they were, they were on the cusp of growth. And the first year that I spent with them, they grew 300% in that year. Mm -hmm. So I got to see what it was like inside a business that had transformed from being a sort of friendly, homely design studio. They were sat around, when I went for my interview, they were sat around, a, the designers all sat around a round table with their pens and it was all very cut and stick. And I was thinking, this is great. By the time I went back after I'd graduated, they'd moved into a new office. They, you could, everyone had computers all of a sudden, you know, and it was um, corp corporate, um, business uh they grew massively but it was really interesting to be in a com in inside a company and, and experience that level of growth it gave me an appetite for well i just knew i couldn't ever go and work in a boring office mm. job because it was just exciting and we were doing so well all the time um so it gave me a real taste of what a fashion job can really be like so how did new york compare to rural northumberland for a 20 something Person. Oh, I mean, it was just so exciting. And I lived in I, my when I first got there, um, somebody had supposed to had supposedly set me up with this apartment and then the apartment fell through. So I ended up in a terrible hotel for quite a few months, a really, really bad hotel, like dangerously bad um, with a shared bathroom. 
Um, and somebody in the room next door that seemed to pickle things. There would always be empty, giant pickle jars just with the pickling liquid in them outside. Really weird, really weird. So you can imagine what that was like phoning home and explaining my glamorous fashion life in New York that was really living in this yes, terrible hotel. What kind of year period was this? So that was uh, 98. Okay, Because cool. the reason um, why I'm going to ask is that with... So I was raised by my mum and almost... I remember... It was about ninety-eight-ish. I was up. I wasn't obsessed, but we used to watch. Or we used to watch Sex and the City. Yes. But again, it was that p- same kind of period. Yeah. And it was just. Um, I I love New York. Anyway, I think it's my favorite place I've ever been to. But I can just imagine what it was like, and it's just get involved, especially with fashion, because it's such a. I say a cutthroat. It's a. It's a. It's a cool industry, and we'll talk about some fashion-related TV shows and food movies, and if they're anything like the real life. But it's just, there's a, I, I can just picture, and hopefully for people on my watch this, try and set the scene for where you were at that time, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, the the sort of aim for me, for me was to live it. You, there was a, um, there's a, a building in New York called the Webster Apartments, and mm-hmm. it's on like 84th Street and, and between 9th and 10th. So it's right in the heart of the city. You know, you're right in the middle of it. Um, and I needed to get into this it's like a women's hostel we're a work and women's hostel so the idea was you stay as long as you want people there were people there who'd lived there for five or six years you had your room you had shared bathrooms and your meals got cooked for you in the sort of canteen you got breakfast and dinner every day but you were mixing with other girls other women from all over the world who'd been drawn to new york for so many different reasons some people just like me that had gone after a job and needed a safe base to sort of start out. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a woman there who was in her 50s from Texas who'd moved from a um, really dangerous marriage and she'd always wanted to live in New York and she'd raised her kids. So she was she came and got a job in New York. So you were mixing with wow. all of these different people. And it was there was there was always somebody to do something with. There'd be 10 people that would go if there was a new movie came out. There'd be people that would go to that. If there was a new bar that opened, there'd be 10 people going there. So it was a really nice um, cool. sort of sisterhood, really, really nice community um, and just loads of fun. And I remember, you know, I'd go out on a Wednesday night. I'd go, I'd come home from work on a Wednesday and have my dinner and then go to bed till 11 o'clock, then get up and get ready and go out to like four o'clock in the morning because that's, that's what you do when you live in New York and you're 23. Um, And I remember my boss the next day would always say, you know, I used to think I was in trouble and he'd say, come in my office. I've got pastries. Tell me everything. I want to know which celebrities were out, what was happening. He just wanted all of the gossip. He said, I'm too old to go out and do all that stuff, but I want to know what's happening. So it felt really exciting and just loads of fun. How would you feel if any of your kids wanted to do the same? My son has already mentioned it. He keeps saying to me, I want to live in New York City and I want to have my own apartment. I don't want to share with anyone. And I keep trying to explain to him, like, we've all got to start out somewhere. But he's really ambitious and he doesn't quite know what he wants to do, but he's he's quite creative, but he's got the commercial mind. He's he's buying and selling stuff at school and all that kind of stuff. So and and he's got his own sort of eBay shop and he's he he probably will test my boundaries in the same way that I tested my parents' boundaries uh, as to what he wants to go on and do. So but but yeah, he already is, wants to do it. But he probably has that view on the world because of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think he just thinks all well, that's possible. So that's isn't, what I'm going to do. Isn't that amazing though? If you think about it in one generation, just how the world is now so different to what it was in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it'll be my standard question. So what happened next? 
Um, yeah, so um, I was in New York and I was at the start very much loving my job, but quite quickly um, got bored, you know, and I, I never stayed in any of my employed jobs that long because I was always, I think I was a bit of a pain as an employee. It's why I have to work for myself. I was always wanted more, wanted to do more. I hated being bored. I wanted to be busy. You know, you said about um, these common traits. Yeah. Is that one of them? Definitely. 100%. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and people kept saying to me, be patient, learn your craft. And I was like, oh, just I need, I need to push on. And when I was in New York, I was already I'd learned about the world of trend forecasting when I was in second year of university. But I had been told by a careers advisor, look, they don't give jobs to graduates to be trend forecasters. You need to have some worldly experience. You need to have commercial experience. You cannot just go and, and advise global brands when you're a university student go and learn to be a designer first and learn the other side of um the sort of industry i suppose uh so in the back of my mind i always wanted to be a trend forecaster at that point and so when i was working at american eagle i would pull together mood boards and go out and photograph things when i was out and about on the weekends and pull together sort of concept boards for the designers and leave them on their desks and just i did it outside of my day job and my boss said to me look i know what you're trying to do um and it's fine you can't do it in work hours and i can't pay you to do it but if you want to be the unofficial trend forecaster for the menswear team then you can be so i mean that was the only invitation i needed mm. i did oh i did all sorts i mean i created i remember i created an entire set inside the office with surfboards and dummies and they were all dressed in all these vintage clothing I, I brought I got a bags of sand there was like a full beach inside the office he I mean I just I did take it as far as I physically could get with that but it meant that I came when I came back to London um after about sort of two years I, I had two portfolios I had my my design portfolio and then I had a trend forecasting portfolio so I was already I had something to demonstrate that I had started to build some skills there. And that was the reason that I got my second job, which was a top man, uh, where they were looking for somebody who mm -hmm. had the design skills, but could do some trend forecasting as well. But just because you obviously you have a team now. Yeah. I, it's funny because you're right that when you're that age, you, you, you just want to push boundaries and do stuff. And I was kind of the same. But now, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you had a shining star within your team that is just going above and beyond and they love it they're just gobbling it all up part of you loves it because you can recognize not everyone has that magic but obviously you did and your boss and other people obviously kind of recognized it but my point is again people always you know want to know how do i get promoted how do i get this chances are if you love what you're doing just get involved ask what you can do more and i think so many people fall into the trap of what's the minimum i can get away with and you're competing against people that love this thing and would do it for free yeah. they're gonna yeah. win it's um in a competitive i mean we're in such a competitive jobs market at the minute you know and um and i mean especially in my industry it was already competitive in the first place but now even more so and you're right i think the people that get the best opportunities are the ones that are not just prepared to sort of answer the brief but to ask really good quality questions about why things might need to be done or what else we might do so they push the boundaries a bit more um and you're right we, we certainly have people in our business who are like that who who come here because it's like that and they'll raise their hand and say i wonder if we could do this or should we do that and they know that the answer is all my answer is always go and build a business case if you can prove to me why we need to do something we will do it i will back that idea but you're going to need to prove to me beyond just having the idea that there's a, a business case for this 
but I, I love that. I love it when people do that. So before we go into the next phase, would you be happy to explain to people what trend forecasting is just for people that might not yeah. know? If that yeah. So yeah, trend forecasting really is, um, I mean, we work with retailers and brands who need to put a product on a shelf or in a website in about two years time and they need that product to resonate with consumers they cannot afford to make expensive mistakes mm -hmm. and so they need as much information as possible to make those decisions and whilst most people have heard of market research you know qualitative and quantitative market research understanding where your customer is now and what they think and how they feel and what kind of stuff they're drawn to you now Market research will get you so far with being able to understand your customer, but the, the very best brands in the world also invest in trend forecasting. Mm -hmm. And they do that because it helps them plonk today's customer in the context of two years time where we might have a different political environment or people's values might have shifted. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that influence the way that we think and the way that we feel. And we take our influence sometimes from, from those around us. So influence spreads in different mm -hmm. ways. So trend forecasting is a is a, a set of methodologies that allows you to understand where change is going and what consumers and shoppers and audiences will be doing in the future. And my customers are anybody from cha charities. Charities need to know how their audience will be responding in the future. Um, mostly corporate brands is, and mm -hmm. retailers, um, but also investment companies who maybe want to invest in the next big thing and want us to scope out a market for them and help them find a, a space that's um, got lots of opportunity in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so lots of types of companies use trend forecasting. Traditionally, people might know that fashion companies use trend forecasting. That's traditionally what people would know but my specialism very purposefully is in the home is understanding the future of home and I did that after all my years in fashion I, I realized that the the world of the future of home was underserved and I could tell I'd done my research I'd done my trend forecasting I could tell that home was going to become more important to us mm -hmm. and that brands needed to get a good understanding of how we behave and respond in the home and how we live together how we cohabit how we how we choose things, how we decorate. Um, so for us, trend forecasting can be anything from picking the color of the year for a paint brand or helping them understand what kind of paint colors will be popular in two years time. Um, so things like, you know, things that people might not ordinarily think about, like the color gray mm -hmm. is now probably the most used color inside the home, maybe alongside white. But prior to that becoming popular, I was going into businesses and saying, you need to have a gray emulsion. And they were like, gray, um, or you need to have a gray front door paint, or you need to have a gray decking paint. And I think people thought I was mad. They said, that's going to look like undercoat. No one's going to want a gray front door or a gray deck um, or a gray sofa. Um, and of course we all know what's happened to that, that um, color and how it's become a staple interior color in Northern Europe in the UK and it really only now it's starting to filter through into the US in the way that it has been here. Because um, it was so from that's... your marketing meetup talk. <clears throat> I was patiently in the third row just listening. And the thing that really struck me, and you gave some great examples, and we might touch on one or two like veganism and stuff. But it was how everything you've just talked about is mega true across all business disciplines. And essentially it's it's the role of a CEO to look at and get touch points in all these different places so that you could be in offshore energy, you could be in the home, could be fashion, could be whatever, is to get a feel for where you think it's going 
and then make decisions based on where you think it's going and it really hit me that almost the so I try and do that myself and I, I try and expose myself to loads of different things but it, that your talk really hit home how I think everyone should not everyone yeah. but certainly decision makers in businesses that I think a lot of people do have a kind of tunnel vision short-term focus next three months profit whatever which is cool and yes if you look at your average standard deviation you you don't have to be the early adopter you can be the laggard and still make money on it but the point yeah. is it's if you're looking to grow and stay ahead of the market and learn and get a feel for stuff um i i, I kind of just i got it in a you know different lens and in a different kind of way yeah. and um i just i think genuinely i think it's kind of super cool and then likewise as well when i guess because say fashion uses it a lot for a lot of different stuff there's probably more competition for trend forecasters in fashion it's actually you know we talked to everyone about having a niche or a speciality in different stuff and then actually if the home is yours and there's not a huge amount of competition there brilliant because especially with the pandemic people now cherish their homes i think more than ever i might be wrong with that but you get my point it's a genuine real yeah. thing yeah that actually i can it i get it i love it it's cool yeah um, so if we fast forward to trend bible would you be happy to both first tell us about trend bible what you do and then i'm going to ask you about what made you want to start the business yeah um yeah so in terms of what we do at trend bible we we help those retailers and brands understand what change is coming how that's going to impact them and and help them understand what to do about it and that is generally with design teams but can be um senior level execs anybody like you've said in in charge of strategy generally in any business of a certain size mm -hmm. you've got some at least somebody in that business thinking about what am i going, how do i pull together a financial plan without understanding the trading conditions yeah. so everybody is doing a bit of trend forecasting they're probably not doing it 365 days a year and getting you know a slack feed my slack feed pings every minute of every day from our trend experts all around the world telling us where they've spotted new weak signals, new examples of change, forthcoming change. So, but most business owners, most decision makers are, are starting to think about how might the world shift and how might I need to shift my product or my marketing message to, to, to be in step and in tune with the future consumer. Um, so that that's um, what we do. We've got tons of different methodologies for doing so some of them are trend forecasting methodologies some of them are foresight methodologies mm -hmm. so with trend forecasting you can kind of plot out past events or bits of information and then you can make projections as to where you think things are going to go with foresight you we use foresight um, methodologies as well where you might be mapping a number of future scenarios that mm -hmm. you think might happen and then you need to decide if those are likely or unlikely or which are the most probable and you need to use that as a basis for your hypothesis to present back to the client the world that you think they're going to live in in 2025 2026 um, and we also do things like we have brilliant trend panels i think we have about eight or ten trend panels a year where we invite different experts from different backgrounds just to come and share with us their insights their research in lots of different areas and our job is to cluster that and to mm -hmm. group um ideas and research into different areas to to sort of understand and map map those out so there's a lot of sort of hard work behind the scenes that goes on and as you'd expect if you were in charge of a multi a billion dollar multi-billion dollar brand as a lot of our clients are and every one of your decisions is a multi-million pound mm -hmm. decision 
you'd want to get it right as well. Because the consequence, as I've seen throughout my career, is that if you make the wrong call on a product and it doesn't sell, you know, the, my clients are people who are sitting in a sales mm -hmm. session every Monday with their whole teams. And when something doesn't sell, everyone knows who made the call on mm -hmm. who put that product into that range at that particular time and how how deeply they invested the company's resources in that product. It has got to be right. Of course, they want to have somebody, a sort of, um, I always say like trend Bible should be in customers' back pockets. It should be a reassuring factor that they've got something from us that helps them back up their idea when it's called into question because it will get called into question. The newer, the more unusual the idea they want to put forward, the more it's going to have to be reinforced by the voices of others. And if they can say, Trend Bible have done their research. I know this color is going to be big. This is why I believe in this particular product. Then it gives them a, a reassurance. Yeah, um, so that's really what what we do. Because um, I must say, one, one of the kind of the synergies, it's almost, so I watch Bloomberg quite a lot because I'm a nerd and I kind of, I like to, for me, that's the feel of, okay, what's going on in China? What's going And it's, it's again, it's the mood music. It's getting a feel for yeah oh, that's starting to dry up and you're trying to look to see where the dominoes could fall but it's the same yeah. kind of thing but people use the same um forecasting ideas to think where stocks might go or what's going to be and i just think it's super interesting but the other thing as well was to do with how and i said this at the marketing meetup a lot of what you do is like higher order thinking it's not a case of a linear progression one plus two plus three plus four yes it's it's gut feel and you only get that after time and experience and it's just yeah. but not i don't think everyone has the ability to do that if that makes sense but it's also yeah. part of the reason why i love what you do because it is actually quite cool and quite niche and i, I kind of get it which is yeah and you're right that gut feel thing i mean people have challenged me and rightly so on that over the years you know one of the questions i get asked is well are you telling brands what to do and therefore you're inventing it and making it up and therefore they do it rather than it it be an actual trend and I always say like our role is actually quite neutral we're there mm -hmm. to hold the mirror up to reflect back what society will will want yeah, so yeah. we're not there to add our own personal taste and whilst gut feel is really important I can't go into a billion dollar brand and say oh I've just, just had this sort of feeling about this mm -hmm. thing that you should do I have to back that up the research has to be triangulated so mm -hmm. we need to have more than one example that something's going to happen um you know, I've, I've learned the hard way. Uh, I've learned the hard way from my own experience when I forecast trends in the past where they were too one-dimensional. And that one dimension, I mean, I, I think I probably mentioned it, didn't I, in the marketing meetup when I forecast a trend um, about the Great, the, film, the Great Gatsby, yeah. And the Great Gatsby had an, a, an issue with some of their key, well, one of their um, key actors in the role got removed from the movie and they had to bring somebody else in so it delayed the entire movie and of course I'd forecast this whole trend and you know the customer needs the social context they're not going to just suddenly walk into the local supermarket or the local home interior store and suddenly fancy a, a black beaded lampshade just because they woke up this morning and thought they wanted one they're picking up on the social cues mm -hmm. that the film would have put out into society they would have read about it in magazines they've possibly watched the movie mm -hmm. but maybe not and um but they've picked up on all of these little clues that, that it's it breadcrumbs all the way to the fact that then they say actually i really want to get that look and feel into my own home so without that sort of 
social context, the product will just fall flat. Mm. Um, so I did learn that the hard way. And it is one of the biggest mistakes I made. And I'm really pleased I made it early on because I was then able to say, we will never forecast trends like that again. We'll never put all of our eggs in one basket. We'll always make sure a trend is has got really strong roots and that we can evidence it across a number of different, different industries. Um, and yeah, things like gut feel, it's important. I've got over 20 years of experience, so I can get a feeling when something's starting to change and happen and I can mm -hmm. trust that, but I can't present that in a singular way to a, a client without being able to back it up and evidence it. If, if we can, and I, if you need to go, tell me, but the one example that I think, I know you don't have your slides, but the rarely hit home in the talk was veganism. Yeah. And how I remember what it was like in the early 2000s and what, and it was almost how that is now a major part of people's diet and society and stuff. Yeah. But would you be happy to give a few minutes just on like the, sure, the yeah. I mean, signals that seem to. Yeah. I mean, there was, I think it was 2012, um, I think you're right. I haven't got my slides. I think it was about around about then when uh, Veganuary started and it was Jane Land that coined that term and wanted to just interest people in a movement behind veganism and try and get people to give up meat for a month. And some people did, and the momentum started to build. And, you know, the the interest in um, meat-free products started to build because there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of papers, scientific papers coming out at the time around the unhealthy aspects of eating too much processed meat or too much meat at all, in fact. So there was a sort of, there were a number of weak signals uh, that promoted veganism as a healthy choice and people were more interested than they had been in a very long time about healthy lifestyles, eating healthy food. So all of the indicators were there um, for veganism to take its next steps. And I remember being at a... Um, the better wholesaling conference in Birmingham in front of, you know, the lot hundred, a hundred different wholesalers and um, being and presenting this slide on the fact that veganism was going to be the next thing. And really this one guy really shot me down and said, not a chance. You know, he said, I've got these stores, you know, little corner stores on the edges of council estates all over the country. And you're telling me, that people are going to go in there and buy vegan products. It just, he just laughed. He laughed. He said, it's not going to happen. I don't believe you. It's not a mainstream thing. And some people might take veganism. Mm -hmm. And the point is that not everybody has become vegan, but people are more open to buying a vegan product yeah, yeah. or eating a vegan meal. Um, they're not put off by the term. It's mm -hmm. become a reason to do something. So, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the glory moment for me was when Greg's launched their vegan sausage roll in 2019, a number of years later. Um, and they they say that the, the thing that helped them get to their first billion pound turnover year was the vegan sausage roll. Um, so it's not quite on every street corner, but it's it's close. close. I think it's it's, a... yeah, it's close enough for me to be very smug about it. <laughs> but but what I think what hit home with the example is that when I was in the audience just listening to the talk, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Oh yeah, that's true. And you, you kind of piece it together, and in hindsight, ah. but it, but the point is, I think it, it drills home the fact that, and then later on in your talk, you went to do about how again it's the classic thing about people buy from people, but it's almost how humans um, identify as ourselves now has almost changed in a way that it's different to what it was three years ago yeah and actually but almost that's something that brands can embrace they can use they and what was quite funny is literally the next day 
I went on to Photoshop and drafted up loads of adverts based on exactly what you because I knew it was true. But I think that was the beauty of why I like to go to different events and talk to different people is because that for me was uh, completely separate to you. Obviously, I watch a lot of stuff and I was like, my gut feel was correct. Let's do it. And the point is that so Trend Bible is one way for bands to do that. Do your own stuff as well. But it's if different totally. people who run connected say the same thing, it's probably... Yeah. Definitely. And I think one of the things that our customers quite often ask us for, which I'm always, I used to be really surprised that they asked us for this, but they ask us to kind of backtrack a trend as well in the same way that I've just done there for you, right? But by unpicking where veganism is a fairly mainstream concept came from. And we often will get clients say to us, please, will you track this trend for us? Because even if we've put a set of sort of macro trends into their business for 2025, the people that they have to present that to this week and next week will be skeptical about mm -hmm. the change that's coming because they can't see it mm -hmm. and they want to know that their team are making the correct decisions. And so the kind of the trend leaders that are inside those organizations have got a real job to do to persuade everybody mm -hmm. in that business that this is the next thing we need to do. Um, so, yeah, our, our customers, like our job is to make sure that they feel fully reinforced. And part of what they like us to do is to track the trends as they evolve. So even on a monthly basis, we have some clients that will ask us what's happened this month. Mm -hmm. The evidence is that these trends are starting to pull through. And when you look back on 12 months of those trend trackers, you can see that the examples we used to case study the trend at the beginning of the trend mm -hmm. um, were really niche. They might be Kickstarter schemes. They might be a two-person startup, um, you know, they're really small one-off examples. And then sort of six months in, you're getting sort of, oh, maybe Ikea's done mm -hmm. something on that trend or mm -hmm. it might be a slightly bigger brand that's starting to pick up that trend. By the time you get to 2025, you should be able to evidence that their competitors are doing that trend. And if you're not doing it by then, it is too late. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm... if your competitors are doing something, they were thinking about it two years ago, to get it to where it is today and but that's why i think it's so useful and it's like for instance with so i play basketball and although i'm 40 next month a lot of the guys that i play with are 18 to 22 24 so they're a completely different generation to me but the views on the world are different if that makes sense yeah. so for me it was about home ownership and it was about this and it was about that as where a lot of the younger people coming through have completely different views but the idea is if people no longer necessarily want to own a home, many do, but you know, it's almost like if you're a housing company, are there innovative ways that you can offer services to? But it's that that I think where the magic is to really deep dive in on customer persona. Totally. Really. And especially, the, arguably, the bigger the business, the, the harder it is to pivot, the earlier you should do it. I think if that makes sense. You're so right. And like what we're finding with that home ownership thing is that, you know, five years ago, maybe longer than that, we were talking about, maybe the millennial generation, how they couldn't get on the housing ladder and they wanted to get on the housing ladder. And now we're seeing a whole different generation coming through saying, I won't be able to get on the housing ladder, nor will I try. And so actually the kind of customers that we get coming to us to find out about the future of home are people like hotel groups, mm -hmm. you know, um, or transport companies, because actually they understand that there's an opportunity there for them. If this generation is on the move and they can take not everybody can, but if an office-based job can take work on the move. And we've got, you know, countries like Bali saying, we'll give you a visa for five years if you want to come and work here. You know, what happens when we when we create a situation where people can't live the lifestyle they want to live in in the place they've been born and they will move on and take their work and their friendship groups and everything else with them. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a sort of nomadic quality to right. those younger generations, which I, I love that. And I think 
um, I think they're going to really show us what it is to live a, a good life. And they're going to show us what it's like to have a different perspective on work mm -hmm. and where work fits into the jigsaw of life generally. And I love what you said about hanging out with all of those younger guys in basketball. Like we try and do that even on a professional level at Trend Bible. We make sure we invite people in to contribute to our forecast, to sense check our forecast from different generations, different cultural and geographical backgrounds, because they, they're going to see the world differently to us. And it, we all have unconscious bias, right? So as a trend forecast, you cannot afford to let that leak into your work. So we will purposefully pull different people in, invite different conversations around a trend so that we can see it with a different lens on. And sometimes I look at, I was looking at editing a trend yesterday and I was thinking, oh, this, this aesthetic is so jarring for me because actually it's a, a like a Y2K revival trend. And obviously I remember that all the first time round. Um, and I'm sure it's not the last time I'll see that come around in my lifetime as a trend. But I was thinking, oh, they, it just, um, it's just, it's not for my generation. I'm never going to pick those products. But for these younger kids, they've never seen that before. And this is this is a historic exploration of cult culture and fashion and music for them. And it's exciting and new to them. But I can't be the best judge of that trend because my my personal lens is so strong. So it's really interesting to see some of the younger people in my business bring these trends through and say, look what's new. And yeah, I'm thinking, cool. oh, I did that first time around. <laughs> One of the things I've started to do, which is a bit pessimistic, but it's almost looking at what happened in society after the Second World War you know so after you've had a time of real turbulence and yes. change which i think we might be about to go into yeah what happened next in you yes. know, the the 50s and 60s how did society how, how did the posters evolve how did the and it because i'm a nerd i love this kind of stuff but it's all part of the same thing because chances are history repeats itself it's a great a great you a good trend forecaster you always look at cycles Give me a job when this goes to <laughs> <laughs> yeah like looking at cycles is so important like what's similar what's different you know, if you look back at the 1950s, the kind of um, big picture influences, you know, religion would have been a bigger factor in people making the choices they made. Um, you know, things like the feminist movement now is completely different. So women in the 50s wouldn't have had so much financial freedom. So you would have found that families and marriages would have stayed together longer, not because people could do marriage better but because they didn't have the choices available to them. So when we're looking at cycles, we have to look at the things in people's lives that prevented and yeah. stopped them from doing things differently versus how you might do it now but there's always something to be to be learned and some brilliant sort of surprising elements in there as well you know for, born from disastrous situations and struggle come some really interesting um innovations so it's it's a good thing to look back as well as forwards cool so over the course of the last few years you've actually won quite a lot of awards for different stuff I'll try and briefly read off the sheet. So you had Entrepreneur of the Year for the Entrepreneurs Forum. You had the Susan Dobson Award for Female Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017. Uh, and in 2022, Creative Entrepreneur of the Year for the Great British Entrepreneur Awards, and I'm sure many others. For you as a business, what has it meant both going for awards and almost, you know, I guess being awarded them? As in, like, have you found tangible tangible benefit like social proof or is it just a pride thing is it a recognition thing it's almost where it's you know obviously it's great to get the pat on the back and i just wondered what it's kind of meant for the business yeah it's a really good question and it makes me think like why did i like the awards that i've entered i really believe in so um 
And I have entered other, like for every one of those ones that I've either been shortlisted for or won, there's like another 10 that I was in a massive strop about not getting shortlisted for. So I'm I'm a bit of a sore loser when it comes to things like that because it takes so much time to fill an application. Mm. You've got to, you know, you can't just copy and paste. If you're serious about it, you've got to write something from the heart and it, it takes a lot of time and I always have to do it out of work hours. So it's all my evenings get taken up. So when you don't get shortlisted and you feel you've put your all into it, it is disappointing. But my husband always says to me, you've got to be in it to win it. So just, you know, get on with it, put your application in, see see where you get. So I'm, I definitely only ever want to enter awards that have a credibility to them. Mm. And the ones that you've mentioned there, the Entrepreneurs Forum, the Susan Dobson Award um, and the Great British Entrepreneur Awards are all all awards that I follow anyway. I follow them every year. Mm-hmm. I like to see who's shortlisted. I like to see who wins. I read all the press about them. So I'm, I'm kind of cons- a consumer of those awards be- before I enter any of them. Um, and the Susan Dobson Award, I remember thinking one year, I might I might enter that. Maybe at the stage now where I can maybe have some credibility with an award like that. And spoke to two previous, well, two previous winners phoned me up separately and said, why are you not, why have you not applied for this? And really told me off. Um, and one of them was Julie Drummond, who mentored me for a bit. And so she knew a bit about my business and mm-hmm. she really thought I should have applied. And the other one was Carrie Owens, who's got o, o Communications. Um, and she really told me off. And they said, look, we've we've entered it and we've won it in the past and you, you should as well. So I thought, oh, I'm not going to get away with this for another year. I'll probably have to enter it next year. So the following year, I did enter it and won it and it was an amazing experience it's a, a northeast award and it's awarded by the family of, of susan dobson who was an entrepreneur and the the dinner um it's really lovely because the year after you win you get to award oh, nice. you hand over the award to the next person and you get to sit with susan dobson's family and uh, that was just really special it was really lovely so entering the award is a good opportunity to reflect you have to fill in the forms it makes you think about what you've done which is I think that's really worthwhile and we don't often especially me I'm always looking forwards I'm always looking in the future so it's nice to be able to look back a little bit and to think about how did I get from rural Northumberland and into college and university and go to New York and do all the stuff that I've done and create 21 jobs and work with international brands it's 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 nice to sort of unpick that. So there is a pride in the, the sort of application process. Um, it's lovely to win those awards. I mean, I'm not the sort of person who really thrives mm-hmm. in you know that that sort of big dinner setting where you've got to get up on stage. You don't know if you're going to win or lose. I mean, I often just can't eat, can't drink. It, it's a bit terrifying. But the Great British Entrepreneur Awards, I decided I was going to do that differently. I thought if I was going to enter the competition, I didn't really think I'd get shortlisted, let alone win my category. Um, but I thought... I'm just going to book a nice hotel in London. I'm going to take my husband. We're going to go for dinner. We're going to go for drinks in the afternoon. And I'm just going to soak it up. I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm sick of putting myself through this torture. And we just had the best time. It was just a really, and like winning was the icing on the cake of that entire sort of three days, but um, really good. And it has created lots of opportunity. I think people... A lot of my clients will say, even in fact, someone emailed me this week saying, I saw that you won that award. It was last November, but they got in touch and remembered that I won that award. So I, I don't know. I'm not the best judge on whether it adds credibility. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I think they're credible awards because I've watched people win them for years. And I admire the people that have won them and think that's great. I've learned a lot about them. And, you know, maybe I'll follow them on social media and follow their careers as a result. So 
good awards are worth doing, I think. You've got what, to kind of get past the fear. But the reason I wanted to ask is almost that the, if you rewind back to when you were 16 or so, and it's that there's a fear the unknown do you go for it do you feel good enough will people recognize it which is exactly what you were saying about a levels and six farm and then kingston and and it, it's that kind of thing of where you know i guess as we all go through our careers even elon musk arguably the greatest entrepreneur of the last you know so and so i'm sure when he goes home and he's i know he plays computer games but he'll still think is this real <laughs> you know as in <laughs> he will still be a real person yeah who has yeah. real problems and whatever but it's still it's that balance of where you often you do need the the push the friend who will say i think you should go for it because we all second yeah. guess ourselves you all think we're not good enough maybe next year yeah and it was just something i wanted to kind of yeah definitely and i think i remember um probably two years before i entered the great british entrepreneur awards i saw sophie milliken mm -hmm. won the one in 2020 which was a lockdown yeah. ceremony so i think she was sort of in a ball gown on a zoom call basically i remember seeing the pictures of her winning that and and I knew Sophie a little bit and really admired her as a businesswoman. And I was thinking, God, that is so great for the Northeast and for sort of female entrepreneurs in the Northeast. Like how brilliant to have her as a shining example. So you kind of have to hope that when that happens to you, that you will then give exposure to other people who also will think, well, maybe I'll enter that next year or the year after. And certainly now that I've won that award, I've been encouraging a whole load of women I know can, can win that award like I did. So it's got a really nice sort of community effect to it, which I think we we benefit from massively in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just am so grateful for the sort of the business community, this, this sort of um, entrepreneurial community in the Northeast. I think it's there's no wonder why it's one of the best the best places for women to set up businesses in the whole of the UK is the Northeast. So um, it's, it's very, there's a very strong supportive community here. Yeah, that's cool. Cause I think I noticed on your socials, it might've been yesterday. Did you get an invite to Downing street? Yes. Yeah. And that was off the back of the exactly. great British entrepreneur awards. But it's, so it's that balance of where you never know where these things can lead. And it's, I've never been, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to House of Parliament a few times. I've been to Buckingham Palace and a few of the others. But never, one day I'll get to go to number 10 and I'll, I'll, I'll be made up. It's just, it's. Yes. Uh, it's, well, yeah, the, the uh, thing was I got invited, but I couldn't go. So um, I was, I mean, it's when I told this to my sisters, uh, they said this was like the ultimate first world problem because <laughs> I was on, I'd booked myself on a, a health and wellness retreat in Spain, which I'd been looking forward to for months. I booked it ages ago. So excited to have just this time in the sun and doing loads of sporty activities and, you know, mm. not being asked every five minutes for something from the kids. It was just, I had yeah, this in yeah. my mind as a real treat and I'd been counting down the days to it. And then I got an invitation maybe a week or 10 days beforehand to Downing Street. You'll and get I immediately started to look at how can I get early flights back? And I just thought, you know, this is not, um, it's unfortunate that I'm going to miss out on it, but um, you never know. These things might roll around again they and will, I, I will have a bit of FOMO, but I can handle it. Um, so I stayed on my, health and wellness retreat and had to decline my invitation to turn down in street so that's very cool though. that is life <laughs> is it correct that you're writing a book i am yes i'm in still in first draft um but yes i'm writing a book called trend leader and it is gathering together all of the the brilliant methods uh that my customers use in all the biggest brands that you can think of you know they are using trend forecasting in mm -hmm. the way that i've 
spoken about today, really, to make multi-million pound decisions, help themselves stand out at work and progress in their career, and and really to, to drive positive change. I think a lot of the people working in large corporate businesses now, you might think that they are kind of, I don't know, really commercially minded, mm-hmm. money grabbing. Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of bad press out there about brands. The people that I meet, the individuals that I meet inside those companies, they want to do good. They want to leave the world a better place. And so they have got some serious challenges on their hands in terms of being um, more reputable, making sure that everything they do has a, an environmental lens to it, making sure they're being socially inclusive. So they want to do good and they're using trend forecasting as a way to understand how the world will change. Mm-hmm. So that's what the book is. The book is there for sort of the next generation of trend leaders to share some practical, pragmatic tools for how you can use trends to get seen at work and make the world a better place. So it's, it's a great... a note or a suggestion... Yes. I think it should be all leaders as opposed to just trend leaders. Genuinely. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I get it. And this is someone that I bought three books and what's I read a lot of business books. I just gobble yeah. through them. But it's that balance of where if it's positioned as for trend uh, marketers or trend forecasters or whichever, you'll have a brilliant audience with them. But my point is, I think it has massive value for a lot of people, the whole wider audience yeah that actually it's i don't want you to undersell it because genuinely i think i'll i'll buy it definitely 100 yeah that's kind of the hope is that it's got a broader you're right i i think it's got a broader um remit to it than just the people who are in charge of the trends inside a company um so that that is the sort of intention that it will have a broader appeal mm-hmm. um and yeah it's it's about those people being able to recognize recognize themselves when they see you know and that's part of the challenge of writing a book isn't it it's making sure that the front cover and the title and the subtitle and everything lets the reader see see themselves somewhere in it or something they want to get from it so it's a big it's one of the hardest things i've done i must say writing a book it's really challenging i thought it was as simple as getting your thoughts out onto the page and i've got loads of notes i've been taking notes and researching for two years so um it's really not as simple as just <laughs> pulling those together um but i am in i think i'm enjoying the process most you, days you i enjoy will. it the, the funny thing is though is that after you've had it live for like a year you'd be like oh version two i could tweak this i can change that and it's yeah just... i think i've already had an idea for book two so i need to get book one written first yeah, cool um so i am conscious of your time and i am really appreciative and stuff um i have a, a few questions at the end of kind of the different interviews and for me this is the favorite bit because actually i'd learn selfishly from all of these the kind of things too um would you be happy to share what's the best piece of advice you've ever had best piece of advice oh um go well in terms of starting a business or having an idea go as narrow as you dare um that was advice given to me and that's what helped me pick the home interiors industry over saying i can forecast trends for any kind of business it's helped us develop a niche and become a sector specialist so go narrow it's a brilliant piece of advice i i I agree it's just it's i'm a fool i went for the business education topic where it's the most competitive thing in the world but actually i kind of i like the challenge but if you can don't do that do exactly yeah. what you've done it's just, <laughs> it makes 100 sense um if you were to give advice to your younger self so you could pick you with the belt on as a little kid in the wellies you could pick you at university the fear of going in uh, new york with the pickle jars or even you last year or going through the pandemic or covid and that kind of thing 
if you were to give advice to your younger self, what would it be? I think it would be, I mean, it's clear that I kind of created and seized opportunities along the way. So there must have been a sort of boldness and a fearlessness to some of those decisions. So I suppose it's tempting to think, oh, I would probably just say, like, run, run with it, go with it, don't live in fear. But I think it's sort of human nature to to second guess yourself. You, can, you kind of have to a little bit to check that your ideas are robust. Um, but there's definitely something about the spirit of just, you know, I, I did have a very deep self-belief, but it was very deep and it was very hidden. And I, of course, was taking on board information and advice from lots of other people around me. Um, so I suppose it's just about trusting, you, like you said, that gut instinct, mm -hmm. trusting myself. Just, you know, if you think it's right and it's what you want to do, go for it. I think that's what I would say. No, I love it. And also, I apologize for the, my focus. We joked before we started <laughs> about this really expensive camera lens. Nikki. Anyway, but no, honestly, I've, I've really enjoyed the just the conversation because I, I genuinely like buy into and i get what you do and i can see the value and also i just love talking business with different people but especially when it's good and it's got a real kind of niche that it's i kind of love it is there anything you would like to talk about or plug before we go um well i would just say anybody that wants to know more about trends we do we have like a freemium level on our online trend platform um, and that is my.trendbible.com. And anybody that wants to sign up there can sign up for free and they will be able to get some trend information for free. Mm -hmm. um, so go and have a look, see if there's something there that appeals. There might be something that gives you an idea or reinforces something that you're already thinking about. Um, yeah, go and go and check it out and see if there's some information there that you can you can pick up and use in your business. Because I remember when you launched the website, <clears throat> I reached out to you and said, who did it? It's really good. And yeah. you told me it was Bloom and they did mine. Yes. So it's, uh, yeah. you, yes, you inspired change. Great. It was cool. Good. Well, thank you. Honestly, thank you for today. I've really enjoyed it. I've genuinely, I love the stories. I'm actually very jealous that I didn't live your life in the twenties and go <laughs> to New York and stuff, but you never know what the world kind of leads. Um, you, you might one day. I might, if I ever go through a divorce and I run off and do my <laughs> thing, it's, uh, I, but the funny thing is, is that with, I, we've uh, as a theme throughout the interview we were talking about the, the 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 trends and the things which actually the inherent traits that people have and it's that ambition to do something and be inquisitive and try stuff and just go for it is it, it's wonderful i love you know hearing people and then likewise thanks to jonathan who commented as well but people do embrace it and they kind of get it as well and it's just it's, it's great to see that from other people that often we don't see the day-to-day -day or maybe you don't quite understand what people do or even you know so for instance sophie millican uh, is a guest in about three four weeks time brilliant but i've seen her around we were in the same restaurant once but i've never actually spoke to her but the point is i'm actually really looking forward to getting to know people a little bit more yeah and then actually if i can kind of share their stories and stuff as well yeah well thank you for your time i'll let you go and pick the kids up i genuinely appreciate it i'm sure other people will and uh, thank you stay so in touch much. Thanks so much, Steve. I enjoyed it. Cool. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.